I would like to speak this evening on one of the primary themes of the Buddha's teaching, the, the contemplation of mortality, what it means for us to give genuine and wholehearted consideration to the circumstance of our existence and the fact that it is not forever. This is a primary Dharma theme and the Buddha spoke of this on many occasions, invited our contemplation, our reflection, our engagement with this topic. And it's uh, recorded in the, the story of his beginning, the journey that the encounter with death with someone who had died and the recognition or the uh, being informed. Kokinshle mentioned a couple of nights ago by his charioteer that yes, this will happen to you also. Evoked or provoked, in fact, we could say, the noble search, the moving from the familiar world into the exploration of spiritual possibility. And... I think this contemplation, this territory, invites us to reflect on our motivation, our intention, to consider what it is that we're doing here on this retreat, right now, in this moment, and in our life. And because it has the power to call us to do this, it seems it's rather useful to be reminded of the fact, and yet, in a rather contrary way, I guess, the society we live in mostly tries to help us avoid noticing or contemplating or reflecting upon it by kind of tidying it up, sanitizing it, keeping it as far as possible at a safe distance. It's a common thing in monasteries in Asia that... Uh, Monastics or sometimes even lay people will uh, leave as a gift to the monastery when they're d- on, their, um, on their death, their skeleton as a, as a thing for people to look at, to contemplate, to consider. And um, some years ago, a, a practitioner at Gaia House, the retreat centre in England where Catherine and I live near and are involved with, um, offered Guy House a a skeleton, a a real, actual human skeleton. And it was very interesting to observe the response because pretty much all of the teacher body were like, wow, really? Yes, please. (laughs) And quite a lot of the sort of governance structures around the sort of the trustees, directors, staff were, oh, just a moment, no, that's going to scare people off. We don't want to turn people away. We don't want to put them off coming. Um... And it was very interesting just to get that response, even in a Dharma center. We do have a a skeleton that lives in our walking room. Um, And it's a wonderful resource, a wonderful asset at Guy House. But for all that we endeavor in our society, in our culture, to kind of sanitize, to tidy up, to keep safely out of direct line of sight the 
the truth of mortality, of this condition we share with all living things. It keeps intruding upon our lives. For some of us here, it's been part of our experience in recent times, or not so recent times, but nonetheless felt closely and keenly. In any group of a hundred or so people, we should find ourselves in, that would be true. We might not always speak about it. Just before we left to come here, Catherine and I, I, we were reflecting on a friend of ours who was ill with a brain tumour and wondering, oh, I wish we'd remember to just go and check out how they were before we left. It just didn't quite happen. And we got a message as we arrived here that uh, it seems her situation has worsened and I don't know if she'll still be there when we get back. It may be that these are the days, her last days. And just something about sitting with that and actually, I don't know. It's been a few days since that message came. Priority for her partner, our dear friend, is not going to be sending emails at this time. So I don't even know right now, is, is my dear friend Lucy, is she still with us? I don't know that. And part of me would really wish to be there if this was, a, as it may be, her last days. But I'm here. We don't know. Any of us, what news we might get before the end of the retreat. My, of course, sincerely and deeply hope and wish that this is not the news any of you receive. But today and tomorrow and the next day, people like us will receive such news of people around us that reminds us of our vulnerability, the soft human body subject to accident, to illness, to aging and decay, leading inevitably to death, to demise, to the ending of this living system's ability to sustain itself. And it is all around us, and yet, it's not so easy for us to really let that in. This, uh, I think, remarkable passage in the Bhagavad Gita, the great Indian spiritual classic story and text of uh, conversation between Krishna and Arjuna. Arjuna is, the, uh, in a way, the hero of the story, and uh, Krishna is his charioteer, Krishna being a, a sort of omniscient deity within that particular framework and articulation of, uh, of wisdom. And he's, uh, Anjuna asks him before going into battle, what, what's the greatest miracle that you see with your vast vision of the universe and the cosmos and all things? And Krishna responds, he says, the greatest miracle that I see in all this vast cosmos is that while people see others around them dying all the time, they somehow believe it will not happen to themselves. And it's touching, isn't it? Because, of course, we know, and we, at the same time, don't quite know. Something in us somehow doesn't quite let that in. And because of that, really, there's this encouragement, there's this invitation to say, let's turn towards that. And again, I think we've, we've maybe mentioned briefly, you know, within the, 
the, the, the same teachings that talk about mindfulness of breathing, the satipatthana, the foundations, frameworks, references for establishing sati, mindfulness, presence, awareness, what we've been engaged in here. Some of what we are invited to establish mindfulness, awareness, presence with is not just this living, breathing system, but what it is to be in the presence of systems that were living and breathing but are no longer, to contemplate beings and bodies that have died, that are perhaps in processes of decay, both prior to and subsequent to death. And to contemplate that, to say, this will happen to me. Because it's all very well to know that it's sort of going to have to happen to me because it seems to happen to everyone. And certainly everyone that was around 150 years ago, it happened to them. And most of the people who were around 100 years ago, it happened to them. There's a few it hasn't happened to yet, so maybe it won't, but it doesn't seem likely. This will happen to me and to you. This body will not escape this. I will not escape this. This hope of escape, that there's some way an avoidance of this, this living system having been born, will die. To contemplate this with courage and compassion is a profoundly wholesome and beneficial practice. And it's not just the Buddha that invites us this. There's a rather delightful epitaph carved upon a gravestone in a, in a cemetery in Norfolk in England. In the 18th century, someone chose to leave as their last message to the world. And I think wonderfully. I suspect the language might have been slightly more archaic than the version of it I have, but this is what I have of it. Remember, friend, as you pass by, as you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you must be. Prepare yourself to follow me. (laughs) Now that's a teaching and an offering and a gift. What does that mean for us? as human beings. It seems to me that it asks us to look at what this is that we call life, to not take it for granted, to not allow ourselves to be seduced by the sense of, well, it's kind of somewhere far away, I'll worry about when I get kind of closer. Then I'll kind of start to reflect and contemplate and engage with that. Because, of course, we don't know how far away it is. And every day, for some people who thought it was far away, it turned out it's not. So we contemplate this. We reflect on it. We consider this, that I, this body, is of the nature to age, to sicken, to decay, to die. And we can start to engage with the way in which we squirm around that a little bit. It's like, hmm, mm, yes, and mm, maybe not. 
we don't ever quite say it, but there's almost like that feeling, isn't it? There's something in us that doesn't quite get that. And it's so important that we do. So even as we contemplate it, we can see that this is a powerful realm and territory to engage in. The Buddha once asked a, a group of his uh, followers how often they contemplated mortality, the, 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 the fact of their death and the unavoidability of this. And you know, there's one saying, oh, you know, every day. The Buddha's response was, yeah, that's good. Okay. Doesn't seem, I think the Buddha was too impressed. Another one, every Every hour. No, that's all right. Yeah, you're getting there. Now, of course, I'm paraphrasing here. <laughs> and the third, with every breath, I contemplate my demise. And the Buddha says, yeah, it's about, about as close as you should be. It's kind of, you want to be that close. It's only that far away. One day, the out-breath goes out. And the in-breath doesn't come in. And it's very few of us for whom we know that that's the one. It doesn't come with a sign that says, this is the last one, enjoy it. It just goes out. And the next one doesn't come in. So if we don't take this breath for granted, we might savour the next one a little differently. And it seems to me that it's, it's not something that actually in the way socially, culturally, we tend to think about it, that it's sort of kind of gloomy or macabre or kind of miserable to contemplate death. In fact, there's something very alive about it, as far as I can tell. There's something very alive about it. It gets people's attention, I notice. And it gives us perspective that is so helpful. Don Juan, in his book, Living With... Sorry, in his um, teachings as recorded by Carlos Castaneda, talks about this, some of the... some beautiful way of articulating this. He says... He's a, a, a shaman and a wise being. He says, The fact of your death is the only wise advisor that you have. And whenever you feel that everything is going wrong and that you're about to be annihilated, turn to your death and ask if that is so. Your death will tell you that you're wrong, that I haven't touched you yet. To ask death's advice is to drop the cursed pettiness that belongs to humans who live their lives as if death will never touch them. And it's so interesting, isn't it? The things we get wound up about. The things that Is it too much volume? Sure. That's okay. Well, this appears at a different place every time. Okay, so we're just testing. How's that? You're getting feedback? We're better? Okay, good. Thank you. Yeah, we never know if we'll get to hear another one of these. So let's, let's, let's try and get it right this time. Thank you. Thank you.
I hope we do. It still is. Hmm. Okay. There's some feedback coming. Okay. Try it down a bit. Yeah, maybe it's... Yeah. Okay, so we're testing feedback. One, two, three. Tell me if you can hear feed. No, I'd like to hear if you can hear feedback. Just a little bit. Okay. It's funny, I was just going to talk about something about that. Not, not personally, but... Uh, it's kind of at another level, of course, in the light of death, trying to get it quite right. Well, sometimes we can consider not being so concerned. There's a difference between endeavouring to do what we can and also making peace with what we can't adjust in life. And sometimes noises, things that irritate us, you know, the food's not quite as I'd wish it, I'm not quite comfortable, the temperature, it's a little too hot or cold. You know, the perspective that we get when we sit in the face of our mortality gives a lot of room around that sort of thing, I find. About whether I've got exactly the right sort of this or the wrong sort of that. It's just kind of like, you know, there's a hole in my jumper. You might notice it. You might not. But, you know, there's, there's a way in which sometimes I think, oh, I shouldn't really be wearing a jumper doing this thing with a hole in it, you know. The moth seems to have had dinner on my clothes and, or in my clothes. And, and actually, it really doesn't matter, does it? Those moments we get worried about how well I'm dressed or not. It doesn't make sense, you know. Of course, someone might change it if I was end up in my coffin and they think someone else might want to have a nice, pristine item. But uh, I think we can actually, I find, in the contemplation, it gives a space for putting up with all the imperfections and the inconsistencies and the sort of, in a way, even all the, 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 the minor insults of life. Because there's one way to avoid them all. Or there's a one way where they'll stop, is another way to put it. There's one place in which they'll all come to an end. And most of us aren't really in a hurry to get there. At least, I'm not. How's the volume doing? We okay? You can hear all right? Sorry? It's the same. Okay. We might have an imperfect system here. Can people hear at the back? Okay. I think you're going to have to hear some stuff that you didn't want to hear as well as some of the stuff that maybe you might want to hear. And that's just in the content of the talk. (laughs) There was an experiment that took place in a prison in Texas quite some years ago now, where people were interested to see how or what would happen in a particular circumstance with a number of inmates who were generally kept in solitary because they're on death row and they didn't have hardly any opportunity to interact with each other, but they were given a kind of some work to do as a group. And these were some quite tough and, I'd say, hard-bitten and probably for quite a few quite fierce characters. And What was observed was that actually there was a remarkable degree of sensitivity and tenderness and care amongst them in their interactions. Not like in the rest of the prison where actually there's a lot of aggro and aggression and violence and threat in the interactions amongst the the prisoners. 
And they asked some of them afterwards, well, so what's going on? What, what, what do you think is happening here? And the response in different forms came, well, you know, we all know that we're going to die. We know that I'm going to die. I know that he's going to die. And that affects how we relate to each other. The Buddha himself, once responding to a group of his followers who'd been arguing, and you know, you might think Buddhists are supposed to be kind and friendly and nice. Um, maybe not the folk you'd find on death row, although, you know, there's no guarantees as to the means, ways one ends up there. But after some time, and the, the phrase that's sometimes used when they're arguing and stabbing each other with verbal daggers, it's like, oh, okay, that's like, ouch, going on. And he said, Knowing you will die, how can you quarrel? If we allow that awareness to come into our relating with each other, it changes it profoundly. It changes it profoundly. Take a moment, if you wish, and look around. these dear beings here. You don't have to look deep into their eyes. But just take a moment to acknowledge these beings. Look at this. Us, we, you, me, they. These we dear beings too will not escape death. None of us. Notice how that touches if it touches. And if it doesn't, well, that's okay too. But just notice what it's like to turn towards this contemplation. I think we find a natural sense of connection with each other when we acknowledge that we are all family in this. We're all siblings in birth and death, and having come, <laughs> and one day leaving. And we might find ourselves more easily and naturally moved to share with each other what we have. Generosity is a natural response in the recognition of our mortality. Uh, for starters, it's like we know we can't take it with us, whatever it is we might have. We don't know how long we're going to be here to use it. So storing it up for long distant future doesn't make that much sense either. And contemplating, contemplating mortality, contemplating death, it speaks to us of the need to live our life in line with what we most care about, in line with what is important to us, and to not put that off. When I was a young man living in New Zealand, and uh, I was working in a, in a high-powered law firm in Auckland, the largest city of New Zealand, and uh, I was thoroughly unhappy in that job, having done it for about a year and a half, absolutely sure I did not want to be doing it, and having really nothing behind me by way of financial resources or sort of a functional family, 
I was also really scared of giving it up because I had very little security in my life. And this one thing that I could do and I was doing, though I wasn't actually at all happy in it, I couldn't quite decide to say I'm going to leave. And my dearest friend from school became ill due to a medical misadventure, a moderately significant condition became over the course of six months a terminal situation. Well, not quite terminal, in fact, a situation which his whole digestive system was uh, taken out and stopped functioning. And he eventually decided to turn off the machines and take a few last conscious breaths free of the drugs and the louder take a few conscious breaths away from the without the drugs without the machines and he died we were i guess both of us about 23 at the time it was really painful it was deeply sorrowful and my friend we called him radar he had really ears that stuck out like this. <laughs> Radar gave me, I realized, an amazing gift in his death because as he had been an incredible friend to me for many years, he, the message I got from his death was, do it now. Don't wait. You can't be sure you'll have another opportunity. I'm not sure if I'd have been able to find the courage to leave that situation and and go out looking for something different, which ended up being this, and actually me being here. I don't know if I'd be here without that. And he's like a benefactor for me in my life, someone who gave me something. He didn't quite mean to do it that way, but he did. And just this year, at the beginning of the year, I was back in New Zealand, and I visited his family, who had been like another family for me when my, my own family had kind of disintegrated when I was in my early teens. And uh, his mum was dying. She was in her last few weeks, it now turns out. Um, and I got to spend a little time with him and visit his grave for the first time because I left New Zealand not long after. And that sense of the message that he gave me of just do it now. What is most important? Put that at the centre. Don't worry about all the other things that you don't know how to deal with yet. Such a gift. What would you do if you knew that this day or these days were the last days you had? If you couldn't be sure of having a whole lot more of them? What would you choose to do? Because this is your life and it's just for a while. We're not quite sure how long. friend of ours, uh, who will actually be teaching here at this retreat next year, Sharda, a friend of Catherine's and, and mine, um, she once gave a talk on this theme at Gaia House and uh, said probably something similar to what I just said and one of the staff quit and went home to Australia to his, <laughs> <laughs> to his daughters in their late teenage years who were totally fine, but he realised, oh, I don't want to be over here when they're over there. Because he didn't know for sure 
how long he or they would have. And something touching and beautiful and slightly problematic for the organisation because <laughs> he literally just quit and went. <laughs> but sometimes that's clear for us. We see what's important and we act. And that's okay. And the world, it seems, manages to organise itself around that because, of course, we could also go as in be gone. And then the world has to deal with that. So it will deal with us saying what's most important and acting on that too. This quality of spiritual urgency arises in response to this contemplation, the sense of samwega, the sense of what is most important in terms of spiritual practice. What is most important for my life? And the end of complacency, the end of that sense of, well, in a little while I'll get on with those important things. Just right now I'm doing the really sort of important things about, you know, that aren't actually really the most important things. What is it someone said? That nobody lay on their deathbed wishing they'd spent more time in the office. (laughs) I would say that's true unless what they did in their office is what they loved the most or felt was most important in their life, for their life. So in a certain way, this, this existence we call our life, it's an invitation to prepare for what it means that it comes to an end. As Plato responded when asked by someone, what should I do? I guess, with my life, he says, what, what should I do? Plato's response, practice dying. <laughs> In a certain way, that's what we're doing here. Practice dying. Letting go. Dying is all about letting go. It's all about, well, I can't keep hold of, nor can I keep away what's here. And we talk about living as in the real world, quote, whenever someone says that to me, real world, I I always kind of go, "Mm." you know, I think it might be more real here than out there. That's just a familiar, common and agreed world. But the tendency to focus on making our living so we can live well is fair enough and reasonable, of course, but what about making our dying to enable us to die well? And as I said, we could let the world perhaps practice getting by without you. Because one day it's going to have to. To live for this moment, for where we are, not for an uncertain future that may not come. That doesn't mean we can't act towards future possibilities. But that we know when we do so. That we need, even as we do so, to take care of it. That thing about how the end justifies the means... The problem is often in that process one doesn't get to the end and one is just left with the means. The way of journeying, if we didn't get there, and if the way is not consonant with the end, then we'll find that that was perhaps not what we would have wished to have chosen. To see life in the light of mortality, in the light of death, punctures our personal self-importance. In some ways, it'll all roll on 
There will be some tears, no doubt, some inconvenience and complication, distress indeed, but it will roll on without us. And yet at the same time we feel, I think naturally as we contemplate this territory, a sense of the preciousness of individual beings, others, and actually this being too, precious. This being, this being, these beings, precious, and collectively the preciousness of the, the whole living system and all the, the beings and the life within it. The preciousness becomes clear when we contemplate its mortality. And how might we live in a world and in a body subject to death? Stephen Levine, a Dharma teacher and practitioner who spent a lot of time contemplating and teaching and working in this theme, in this territory. He, some of you may know, um, created a a practice um, framework called A Year to Live, in which one lives the year as if one will die at the end of it and makes all the choices and acts as fully as one is able as if that is so. And I haven't done that particular course, though I've talked to people who have. I have read the book that comes with it. And one of the lines that he articulates in the book that struck me and resonates every time I reflect on it, it says, In the end, love was the only rational act of a lifetime. And I'm really touched and struck by the truth of the statement and the juxtaposition of love and rationality, which so often are portrayed in our culture and world as, oh yeah, there's all that mushy heart stuff, but actually, you know, smart folk do this, you know. Take care of your security. Yeah, we need to take care of some of that. But love, expressing our life in terms of what we really care about so important. And because we don't know when we'll get to do it, to take and make, make and take the opportunities when we have them. If we don't know how long we'll be here, then we might consider the importance of completion. To tell them we love them. We forgive them to say goodbye, even if we might see them again. For many years, Catherine and I, when one or the other of us would go somewhere teaching, traveling, we'd just take a moment and pause and just say, I hope I see you again. Because it was true. It's still true. But we don't always remember that it's not guaranteed. I hope I will see you again, but it's not guaranteed that I will. Just to allow that in, to feel the poignancy in that. And I went to visit my father, who had his 80th birthday in New Zealand earlier this year, and um, just taking a few moments with him, he may well live quite a few moments. His parents lived into their 90s, so he could be around for a while, but just really taking a moment to say, I may not see this man again, this being again. And to say goodbye when I left him from that place. And I love you and I forgive you. And I appreciate all the good things you gave me. And I don't need to talk about all the other stuff right now. (laughs) 
And just, just do that and let it be simple. To see how this contemplation invites us to really take care with our action in the world. The principle of ethics, of living with an intention to refrain from causing harm and an aspiration to contribute to well-being for others, for ourselves, for the world. That this is an essential orientation in life if we wish to live well and if we wish to die well. It doesn't mean we'll have done it perfectly. Of course, no one does. But that we have a sense maybe we've done the best we could or close to that in that realm is one of the most important things for this journey that allows our heart to settle, not just in meditation, but it, that's a part of what allows, a big part of what allows our heart and mind to settle in meditation is that sense of having aligned action with our sense of caring, having brought heart and body and speech into alignment. So what we care about and who we care for and how we've lived, acted and spoken. And so just take a moment perhaps and notice how this lands for you, how it resonates. For some it may be, and I understand this is why it's not easy to go into this territory where we don't casually, generally casually strike up a conversation about, so, you know, has anyone you know died recently? It's not an easy thing, and I don't mean to say that as a joke, because for some that would be a hard conversation to have. And I've spoken with some here, where that is a conversation that's alive amongst people here in this room. And we see that we can't easily move into this territory of just allowing ourselves to feel and turn towards this because it runs deep into us as human beings to contemplate death, to contemplate mortality, evokes grief with regard to loss. And this is not easy territory for us. We may, again, as I said, there may be and will be amongst us those for whom this is alive at this time. And others who perhaps that's not what's so close at this point in our life. but to consciously turn towards it, to reflect, to contemplate, to open the conversation. Of course, for many people, it's a relief to be allowed and be given permission to speak about it if they wish, but to equally not have to if they don't. And so often it's a closed conversation. It's like, sorry, that's not an option here in our world. But then things kind of break through into our life and our world and our consciousness. And last year in, in England, a tower block in a very wealthy suburb of London, but a tower block in the poorest part of the wealthy suburb, caught fire. Turns out they'd wrapped it in 
bright looking panels to make it look a little less unpleasant that were highly flammable. And the general strategy was with tower blocks, they're built so that the fire won't travel. And so if a fire breaks out, the advice is stay in your flat. If the fire's not in your flat, stay in your flat. And that's what they told everybody. And people were talking on their phones to their loved ones as the fire spread and destroyed the building and dozens upon dozens of casualties, some of whom their family described, talking to them as they were saying, the room's filling up with smoke, it's getting hot. And then at some point the conversation from the other end stopped. And they were talking to them. And, and just, what is that for us to turn towards, even if it's not ours? But for some of us it might be to know sometimes things reported in the news. They didn't just happen to people over there, they happened to people like us. And we actually might even be some other people sometimes that it happened to. These tragic occurrences in our world. And just to see what is it for us to sit with that, to face that, to turn towards that. The loss of personal human connection. And as I said, my friend Lucy, and you know, I'm sitting with the tenuousness of that, that I, it might already even be beyond me to have contact with this being who I love again. I don't even know. And sitting with what it might be to contemplate the, the larger losses that we equally might need and find it really hard to, but be called to acknowledge and contemplate the losses that we see and hear if we listen and if we look that are there in our world at this time, not just coming towards us, but here already. Losses that are both individual and very personal, but that are also collective and shared. The loss of peoples, of communities, of habitats, of species. 200 species lost. Not just the individuals, but the whole species gone. Each day, we're told. Every day. Yesterday, today, tomorrow. That's a lot of loss for us. We can't easily hold that. It's a lot of sorrow if we allow ourselves to feel what that means. and We tend to shy away. And it's understandable, so it's important not to judge ourselves where that might happen, but to see, is it possible, out of my care, out of my love for this life, for my life, which is part of this, and the other lives which I care about, is it possible to turn towards this vulnerability? This reality that we call mortality, that manifests as what we describe in a single word, death. If we can hold with tenderness, with kindness, with compassion for ourselves, what it is to be touched in that way, to be open in that way, It's natural that our system, our living system, this living system responds to the condition of other living systems in their vulnerability, in their mortality, in their danger. We find we quite naturally want to wish well for a friend as mine and Lucy on her deathbed. 
I asked her partner, if it's okay, could you just whisper my love in her ear? I don't know if she'll hear it. But if I was there, I'd like to do that, even if she couldn't hear it. Or we might find in our hearts the courage to respond to avoidable harm that causes grievous loss, avoidable harm that takes place in our human communities through injustice, social injustice, and other forms. The harm that takes place to the living ecology of our planet, our biosphere. And we might feel moved if we can open to this, to wish to engage with the human systems that are harmful and destructive to individuals and to this ecology. We might feel moved to protect, to preserve this precious life. And of course, we might, all of us, have to find what's possible and meaningful for ourselves. There's no map, there's no blueprint, there's nothing that says you must do this or you must do that. It may simply be the turning of one's heart and tenderness and the acknowledgement that I care about this and a quiet conversation with another. And it may be something stronger or firmer or louder that we find ourselves called to respond in. But finding our response is one of the tracks of this practice. Wisdom and compassion born of waking up. Waking up to our life. This is what we're here for. At one level we talk about the freeing of the human heart from craving and aversion. But the manifestation of the human heart so freed is in wisdom and compassion. And in compassion this movement of Caring for life, courageously. The Buddha said once, of beings, most beings, comparing them like, he's saying like, they're like children playing with their toys while the house is burning. And a little bit like the tragedy of the simple human thing, the Grenfell Tower fire in England last year. The house was burning and people didn't move because that was what the protocol said. <coughs> Despite the fact that everybody could see the flames rushing up the sides of the building. And the ecology of our planet that's heating up and we actually know it. The essential message of the Dharma teachings is that we need to wake up. We really need to wake up for the cultivation of mindfulness is not for mindfulness itself, but the fruition of this practice in wisdom and compassion. The Buddha said of these teachings and this practice, mindfulness is the path to the deathless. The heedless live as if already dead. To simply repeat the patterns of our history and our conditioning without really being a conscious and voluntary participant in what's happening 
is in some ways a living death. Living on autopilot, the death of living life on autopilot, unconscious, habitual, repetitive, not really alive. And, you know, I sometimes wonder about our modern enthusiasm for zombie movies <laughs> and zombie programs. I don't watch much of it myself. I don't think it's quite what does it for me. I have my other dodgy attractions in terms of media. <laughs> I kind of go for superheroes, really. But, um, you know, this thing about zombies, living death. And it somehow attracts us because in some ways we are engaged with the reality of our deeper fear of our own living death, if we're not awake, if we're not fully here. And so, as we contemplate this, we also need to look deeply into what is it we are contemplating? What do we mean? That word that evokes fear and a sense of, oh, I don't want to go there, that touches, of course, deep tenderness in terms of loss, in terms of grief, in terms of the profound vulnerabilities of ourselves and others and living systems. But when we look, if we feel, when we allow ourselves to make contact with us, it's actually, we, we, we aren't actually afraid of death because unless you've got some information I haven't, we're mostly thought of, afraid of our thought or our ideas and our associations with death. Right? don't remember having been there before. I might have done, according to some theories, but I don't have any recollection. I have no idea what that involves. I mean, at one level, it's a bit like what Woody Allen said, you know. Didn't he? I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> it's like the process, of course, might be challenging. That's the process of dying. But death itself, what is it that's scary about that, threatening or challenging about that? Ultimately, death represents an absence of a reference point for me, for I, for the sense of self. It's scary to us, and ultimately all fear actually comes back in some way to a fear of death and annihilation. If you track and trace, if you can stay with the patternings and the feelings and the body and the mind that arise in the contemplation of anything that is fearful or threatening, the sense is that if this happens, it'll be unbearable, it will undo me, it will overwhelm me, it will effectively annihilate me. And this is at some level what we're afraid of and that's why our whole system reacts the way it does because it's trained to prevent itself getting annihilated. That's the thing it most wants to do and will ultimately fail to do. It's no wonder it's a problem or a challenging thing to inhabit a body and a mind and a heart in that condition. But to see that this fear of death is a fear of an idea and a fear of a loss of a reference point and a framework that we give ourselves some security through holding on to. And whatever we think about what happens at that point, in the end we do not know. There are those who would say that, well, it's all just a biological phenomena and when death happens that stops and that's it. And there are those who say, no, no, it's a spiritual thing and it just keeps going or it goes to another realm or it comes back to this realm or you know, whatever the variation of that articulation is. But both the fact that it completely means there's nothing 
after. That's uncertain. In fact, it's sometimes suggested that ideas of you know, rebirth are like consolation. Well, they're only consolation if you actually think it's kind of fun being here. If you're not enjoying it that much, the idea that it stops sounds like consolation. <laughs> and likewise, the other way around. In the end, the belief itself becomes the, consola- the consolation because it's actually a sense of something I can hold on to in a territory actually that calls us to hold on to nothing. And that is why it challenges us. And it challenges our orientation and our sense of who and what it is that we are or take ourselves to be. So we're asked to look deeply here, to question perhaps, who and what is this that is subject to death? Who and what is this that dies? Because clearly this body having come will pass. Having come into existence will come to an end of its existence. But we see as we practice and contemplate that although this body is intimate and close and tender and precious and remarkable and mysterious, we're not exactly it. And it's not exactly we. If we cut our fingernails, we don't feel diminished. Sorry, slight change of tone there. That was a joke. But but it's kind of interesting, isn't it? How at one level we feel that it's me, and yet at another level we might start to get that it's not. It's this. And actually, as we contemplate our mind, it's much the same. It's not someone else's mind. Well, some bits of it are, actually. A lot of what goes on in there we got from somebody else. But actually, a lot of what goes on in here we got from somebody else, as it happens. And the interesting thing is they got whatever we got from them. They got that from somebody else. And it just keeps going back. So claiming ownership doesn't really make a lot of sense. But at the same time, when we start to contemplate in this way, there's a sense of a something mysterious, something unknown or ungraspable by the conceiving process of the mind. The death that we can actually confront is not our ideas about what might happen at some point when the system comes to an end, but the death that we can confront is our entry into the unknown, the unknowableness to die to our past and our future into this moment. And in a way, in that framework, death is what represents the ultimate unknownness of existence, unknowableness of existence. And it's not easy for us to to engage with this because the loss of our past, our future, everything, brings us into this territory of loss and grief. And it's, it's it's a hard territory to navigate. And it's so important that we find ways to support ourselves to do this because the way our system works in terms of connecting and associating is that when we feel into the grief of loss, of the smaller or greater losses of our life that we've known, that we 
we'll come to know, which we can contemplate and see. We'll come to know the losses that we haven't yet lost, because we see they must be so. As we start to feel into this, the losses we faced, past, present, future, we actually also come into contact, not always consciously, but we come into contact with the sense of the deeper loss, the deepest loss perhaps we could say, the loss of our connection with the, the fundamental, essential nature we could say, the essence of our life, of being, existing, what we might call the sacred the Dharma, the truth. There's lots of language for it. None of it quite works. And yet, the feeling of knowing something that we long for, that we are called to, but that we don't quite seem to be in touch with. And yet, the fact that we're called is because somehow we have known this. This has been known somehow, in some way. And yet, that knowledge, that knowing, that connection has also been lost. Not necessarily by us personally, but somehow in this which is life that is not just personal. And that the deeper loss that we feel that's in the territory when we enter into the realm of whatever has been lost, which makes it so hard to go there, is that this this loss that has involved taking birth and unconsciousness to become disconnected, disembodied, disembodied, cut off from our connectedness to the wholeness of what we could call everything. This is, this is not easy territory to navigate. But this is the instrument that can, this heart, this mind, this body, established and mindful, embodied presence, with courage to turn towards and look to see what is true, what is here, what is this, and what is it not. Not having to answer those questions, but allow them to open us. Contemplating mortality is a profound support for letting go and letting be this condition and circumstance as it is. When we're not holding on to anything, when we're not pushing anything away, but we're still present, we're sensitive, we're alive. There's a wakeful, embodied, curious engagement. In this condition, we may come to know, to be touched by, to realize what the Buddha spoke of as the deathless. To be open to all and bound to none. To not define ourselves by any particular experience, by any particular contact, by any perception of the world or ourself or another. To not take birth in relationship to the arising of experience. And yet equally, not to somehow define ourselves or conceive ourselves or others or the world as somehow apart from or separate from all of this. What is born will die. This is given. 
But when we don't take birth in this, we may come to know what is not born and what does not die. The Aymara Dhamma, the deathless. Which is not to be found in any of this, nor apart from it. This is the fruition of wisdom and these teachings of freedom and compassionate responsiveness. And in this, life is naturally called to move and respond appropriately, free of the fear that inevitably accompanies a life that is less awake. So let's sit quietly for a few moments, dear siblings, in birth and death, in life and truth. Khan, the wonderful Zen poet and hermit, monk, he says, do you want to know what has been in my heart since before the beginning of time? Just this. Just this. May we all, in our lives, in our practice, in our journeys together, may we come to know this. May we see this life and cherish all that lives. May we, for our own well-being and for all beings, for all that lives, may we realize the deathless, the unbound heart, unceasingly responsive, 